This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The greatest challenge was walking long distances, for example of eight miles without any drinking water. There was those who were drinking the urines of their colleagues. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane, executive producer of Life of the Law, and for the last year, we've been working behind the scenes with a team to produce the story you're going to hear today, um, at least the first part of a three-part series. And this series has been extremely challenging because we're leaving the United States. We are in Uganda, which is in East Africa. It's a small landlocked country. And about 30 years ago, a man named Joseph Coyne, or Coney as you might know him, um, began something called the Lord's Resistance Army. And these rebels in northern Uganda began abducting children um, as young as five. The boys he forced to fight, the girls they raped, and then forced to bear the children of his rebel commanders. And the really interesting part of this series is that we're looking at a country where the structure of a country failed to protect the people of this north in northern Uganda. Um, 60,000 people were abducted. 20,000 of them were children as young as five. So in this series, we're going to go back to 1986 when the abductions began. And we're going to follow two people, two children who were abducted through the 30 years to find out who they were, what happened when they were abducted, who they became, how they survived, and then their lives today. And we're doing this at the very time when one of the rebel commanders, Dominic Nguyen, is on trial at the International Criminal Court in The Hague for war crimes and crimes against humanity. But will that really give these people, these these mothers and fathers and the children and the communities, will this bring them justice? And that's the focus of this series. So today we present part one. It's reported by Gladys Aroma, who lives in Gulu, Uganda, which is in northern Uganda where the conflict all began. And, and I do want to give a warning. Our story does include descriptions of violence and sexual abuse that may be difficult to hear. Now, 
Part 1. Abducted. It's a long story. In 1986, I would say it was the beginning of the LRA forces with the leadership of Joseph Coyne. Isaac Okui lives in Gulu district in northern Uganda and heads an organization known as the Justice and Reconciliation Project. Looking back, Okui says the violence and the abduction began with Joseph Coyne, but that wasn't where it all began. To tell the story, we have to go back to 1893, when the British colonized Uganda. To suit British interest, they pitted the ethnic groups in the north of the country against the ethnic groups in the south. Ugandans living in the north were to do military service and provide cheap labor. Ethnic groups in the south were given administrative jobs in the colonial government. This preferential treatment, pitting Ugandans in the north against those in the south, continued for generations. In the new Africa, one more independent country, the state of Uganda. When Uganda finally became independent in 1962, those externally driven ethnic divisions made it difficult for the people of Uganda to build a unified state. The ethnic groups in the north and the south fought for control of the country. In 1970, nine years after independence, there was a military coup and a year later in 1971, a dictator named Idi Amin Dada took control of Uganda. Over the next decade, Idi Amin killed more than 100,000 people in the reign of terror. Then, in 1979, a group of rebels from the north called the Uganda National Liberation Army, or UNLA, successfully fought to oust Idi Amin from power, and he was exiled to Saudi Arabia. In 1980, an election was held to try and bring the country together. UPC has got 145. UPC has got 4,000. Milton Obote, a leader from the north, was declared the new president. The people from the south weren't happy with Obote. Those who opposed the new government began a civil war. A rebel group from the south, called the National Resistance Army, led by Yoweri Museven, fought to overthrow Obote's government. In Africa here, even by the age of four, you learn how to fight. And in 1986, rebels from the south took control of the country and installed Yoweri Museveni, the new president of Uganda. That didn't end the fighting either. In the north, rebel groups formed to oppose Museveni's government. That's where we begin our story. One of the most violent and longest-lasting of all rebel groups was the LRA, or the Lord's Resistance Army. The LRA was led by a man named Joseph Cony. It's a kind of spiritual attack that 
Joseph Cohn claimed that he was abducted by the spirit to fight a holy war, and that is how he started his recruitment. Cohn promised to fight what he called a holy war for the rights of the people in the north. Other rebel groups, including the UNLA soldiers from the Obote's government, joined Cohn in his fight against Museveni. It became easy because in 1986 was a moment when the NRA government took over power and the UNLA were taking refuge. Many who returned back home in northern Uganda returned with their guns and uh, they were not saved and they found it easy to take safety and the LRA leader by joining the force of LRA. At first, Cohn and his growing army of LRA rebels reached out to the communities in the north to ask for food and support for his holy war. But when that didn't work out, Cohn and the LRA rebels began terrorizing the people of northern Uganda. Instead of fighting for their rights, the LRA looted their homes and businesses. And beginning in 1986 and continuing for the next two decades, Cohn and the LRA rebels abducted more than 60,000 people from the north, including 20,000 children, some as young as five years old. We were asleep when at around 4 a.m. we had someone kick the door open. Beatrice Ochoe is sitting in a small thatched hut in a village in Gulu district in northern Uganda. She lives there with her five children. Now 30 years old, Beatrice says she remembers the night the LRA rebels abducted her from her uncle's home. She was 15. They told me, girl, stand up, and I did. They told me to remove my blouse, and I did. Then they said, this is a grown-up girl because her breast has already developed. And they came and picked me. They had come in numbers. They came at around 2 a.m. in the night. Samuel Akena operates a small shop in Gulu where he sells biscuits, sweetbreads, alcoholic and non-alcoholic drinks. He lives nearby with his wife and child. Samuel says he was abducted by the LRA rebels in 2000 when he was 11 years old. They opened the door. We were asleep. I only realized that I was being slapped and kicked. I was thinking it was my friend slapping and kicking me. When I woke up, I saw soldiers. They told me to get up, tied my waist with ropes, and chain us in a line and told us to begin walking. Before they were abducted, Beatrice and Samuel say they lived with their parents and their siblings and attended the local school. My life was not bad because I was staying with my mother. My mother used to take care of us and we used to stay with my sister. We were a happy family and we used to listen to one another and we respect each other's views. My elder sister used to train us on how to do domestic chores whenever our mother was not around. 
If it's school time, I would go to school. I was performing well in mathematics. And I had a good relationship with my friends because I was not violent. Because we were young, we used to every Friday collect firewood and food stuff and return every Sunday. And on Monday we have to go to school. The life was so fine with my friends. Whenever we would come back from school, we refresh our minds by playing football. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Children like Beatrice and Samuel, who managed to survive their initial capture, say they were then forced to march north for weeks through bushes, across rivers and swamps and over mountains to the LRA's permanent compound in southern Sudan. There, the LRA rebels had been given protection by the Sudanese government. We were abducted at around 2 a.m. and we walked throughout until we reached Teguat Atoll at around 7 a.m. in the morning. We spent a night there and left at around 4 p.m. in the afternoon to cross Kampala Highway. We crossed the highway at around 10 p.m. As they marched from one temporary camp to another on their way to southern Sudan, larger groups of children were separated from their siblings and relatives into small groups. From there we proceeded to Koch, where we met so many other abducted children, and they distributed us among different groups and taken to a different commander. Our duty was to carry foodstuff. At night, small groups of LRA rebels and captured children slept in makeshift tents. They ate food the rebels had looted from villages along the way. Each morning, children were forced to carry large bundles of food and supplies. Samuel says if a child was too weak to carry a bundle, or they complained they were tired, or said they could no longer walk, they risked being killed. Those who were not able to walk were killed. Children who were abducted said LRA rebels would order them to use a club or a machete to chop to death children or others on the march. Then they would leave them alone to die. The greatest challenge was walking long distances. For example, of eight miles without any drinking water. There was those who were drinking the urines of their colleagues. Along their way north, some very young children, those injured in battles, the sick and the heavily pregnant women were taken to a guarded camp along the march, known as a sick bay, where they received medical attention. We stayed in that place for almost two months. We left sick bay and went to Amuro. But when we reached Amuro, we met resistance from residents and getting foodstuff uh, was not so easy. The residents fought us with bows and arrows. 
So it was difficult to get food. We started shooting wild animals for food. Samuel says it was during their long march to southern Sudan. The abducted children realized no one was going to save them. They had no choice but to adapt to their life in the LRA. If young and in the care of a kind commander taking care of you, for example, we walk for three weeks to reach Sudan. In some places, I could not walk. My legs were swollen. I was carried for two days. Petra says after she was abducted in the middle of the night, she and a group of 20 children were forced to walk to the LRA's temporary camp in Kitgum. When we reached Kitgum, they gathered us under a big tree. There were so many commanders. Each commander started pointing at the girls of their own choices, and they picked five of us to stand up. We thought they were going to kill us. Their escort took us to the homes of those commanders, and other girls who remained were taken to other soldiers. While on the march north, commanders and soldiers were allowed to pick the girls they wanted from among the abducted children. Beatrice was taken to the tent of Okot Odiambo, one of the LRA's top commanders. During the day, nothing happened. But after we cooked, at around 8 p.m., Odiambo sent his escort to come and pick me. He started asking me if I know why I was there. I told him I did not know, and he told me, starting from that day, I would be his wife. He asked me if I had understood, but I kept quiet. But he repeated that even if I kept quiet, I was his wife. For me, I did not know what it meant to be a wife. Because when I was abducted, I had not yet started seeing my menstrual period. At night, Odiambo told me to undress. I refused. I told him I was not going to undress. He wanted to have sex with me. I refused. He then started forcing me, but I could not accept. He realized he would not force me, so he went and picked his gun and said, if I refuse, he would shoot me. He pointed the gun at me and told me to undress, and I did. He started forcefully having sex with me. I started crying and screaming for help, but he told me he would kill me if I am yelling. I told him I could not manage having sex with him, but he said, if I was young, I would not have breasts. I told him I was still young and I had never been involved in sexual intercourse. By that time, I was bleeding and my hips was paining too. Since he forcefully had sex with me, I did not have any energy and the following morning, when we were to depart, I could not move and he told me he was going to kill me if I was pretending. I could not walk. He later told me to move and we started walking and he was behind me. Blood was all over my clothes and I did not have another dress. There came a lady who was abducted earlier. 
He moved and left me behind and told me to remain there if I could not walk and people who were coming behind would kill me. That lady, when she saw me, she told me to stop. She picked her dress from her bag and requested me to undress and throw my clothes away because blood was all over it. She picked her skirt and told me to follow her even if I could not walk. She told me that if I did not follow her, they would kill me. She grabbed my hand and she started walking with me. My inner thigh was bruised and I was bleeding. As one of the first rebels to enlist in the LRA, and one of the most senior commanders in the ranks of the LRA, Bitre says Okot Odiambo had taken 10 captive wives. He told the girls at his home that warm water for this girl to bathe. I got his wife who was called Margaret. He told Margaret, go and boil water and nurse this lady so that she will be able to walk tomorrow. Margaret went and boiled water and started nursing me. While doing that, she was asking me what happened to me. I told her and she told me not to mind about such incidences. That similar thing happened to her. She told me, just be strong and be ready for walking. The following morning, we started to move, heading to Sudan. We walked for five days to reach Sudan. In southern Sudan, the LRA's top commander, Joseph Kony, had established a permanent compound with thatched huts and a military base. When we reached Sudan, my feet were swollen. My inner thigh was badly bruised. I could not do anything. From there, they started telling us where we were going to stay. Margaret was boiling water for me to nurse my swollen feet and my bruised thigh, which were full of wounds. Even though the government of Sudan had offered the LRA protection and at times provided the rebels with food and ammunition, the LRA faced surprise attacks from the Sudan People's Liberation Army. After one week at the LRA camp, people who had wounds on their feet started healing. We were not used to such kind of life. We found there was nothing to eat. If you want to get some food stuff, you must go to the civilians in the villages to loot food. And when you go there, you might come or not, because the civilians there had guns. When you go there, you might come. It makes people vomit a lot because it was not good for consumption. You find people dizzy and vomiting after eating raw cassava. Some people who were weak died. They used to tell me to go and get it on my own. Because I did not know how people used to get what to eat, I found life very difficult. When his group finally arrived at the LRA compound in southern Sudan, Samuel says there was an outbreak of cholera and little to no water or food. We would boil the sorghums and eat. This happens for one month. There was no food. There was an outbreak of cholera. Cholera kills so many people. Samuel says that meant children had to eat a local cereal called dura and what they could find in the wild. <laughs> 
Samuel says only Kony and the senior commanders had enough to eat from the goods they had stored. The commanders used to store their own foodstuff. The children whose commanders had stored foodstuff and were liked by the commanders would eat the same food. Those suffering from cholera were left alone and when they died, they were carried and dumped. There are only rough estimates how many people lived in the LRA compound in southern Sudan. It's estimated there were 3,000. What has been reported by those who survived is Coin lived in the center of the compound and he had complete authority over every aspect of life in the LRA. The highest-ranked person is uh, Joseph Kony, of course, followed by another who is in second in command. There's a third one. Those first three are the ones who normally share most of the top secrets before they go down to other commanders. Grace Achan spent eight years in LRA captivity in southern Sudan. Achan recently authored the book, Not Yet Sunset, about her life as a survivor of the LRA. Achan says the LRA was run as a military organization with Kony the Supreme Commander. Those top three stay in the headquarters, what they call control altar. There is chief defense, there is administration unit, there is the yard which is mainly concerned with prayers and rituals. Then there is support, support, support. Those are those, are those who have uh, big guns, eh? use big guns. In 1986, when Kony began recruiting rebels for the LRA, he was joined by men and women who became known as the originals. Original women, while some of them fought, they eventually married senior commanders. And when they moved to Sudan, they became senior wives to commanders. Erin Baines is a professor at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. She has studied the women in the LRA and the originals. Bain says the senior commanders had authority in the compounds, but the originals, the first wives, had limited control over the family units. Senior wives then ran the familial unit, which coincidentally was also the military unit within the LRA. So they had a great deal of power and decision-making within that unit, for example, over distribution of food or distribution of labor or which of the new recruits uh, went to training or got fed and taken care of. They also had a great deal of power over junior wives and they could exercise it compassionately or they could exercise it in a coercive no, and even sometimes violent way. Inside the LRA compound, Beatrice says there were five battalions. Each battalion had its own area with a senior commander, his soldiers and his captive wives. For instance, I was staying under the command of Odiambo. He was my husband. By then, he was a captain. He was in charge of a battalion. He would be the commander and lead that group to the battle while assisted by a second lieutenant. He directed me to stay with his first wife. Each wife would wait for her turn to go when she would be called to go and spend a night with Odiambo. The other women would sleep in the kitchen. As the second captive wife in Odiambo's family unit, 
Bitra says his first captive wife, Margaret, had authority over her, over how much she would eat and whether she would be abused. When I was abducted, I got him with one wife, Margaret, and I was the second wife. Other ladies were brought when we were there. Later, we were seven wives. She would maltreat me. Sometimes she would punish me for no reason. Force me to loot food, and I was always the one to cook. And when I brought food stuff, she would not allow me to eat. Yet I was the one who went and brought it from the villages. If she decided that I eat, she would give me little portion, that even if you eat, you would not get satisfied. She was a big woman, and she knew the usefulness of having a husband. Sometime when Odiambo would call me to spend a night at his hut, she would pinch me with a stick, and she would ask me what took me there. Yet I was always called there by Odiambo. As a teenage girl, Beatrice says if she showed any sign of resistance to Odiambo, she would suffer more abuse. My husband did not like me because I was so rebellious. Throughout my life there with him over the issue of sex, he would always force me into sleeping with him. He would always look at me like a woman who was not ready to satisfy his sexual desire. Beatrice says if she resisted his sexual abuse, Odiambo would often punish her by sending her to Uganda to fight with the LRA rebels. Instead of killing me, he always wanted me to be engaged in the battle while his first wife, Margaret, would remain with him. If they were to pick fighters under the command of Odiambo, I would be the only female fighter among them. Inside the LRA compound, captive children were taught how to use a gun and were made to farm nearby lands, skills they needed to survive. We were trained how to use gun, how to dismantle a gun, to shoot, and how to confront your enemy during close fire. If now you knew how to use guns, they would give you a gun and a uniform and prepare you for battle. They would send us to go and loot food from the civilian in Sudan, and they would send us back to Uganda and fight with government forces. Inside the compound, Samuel says, with so many guns and ammunitions, movement was restricted and conversations were monitored to prevent revolt and escape. Leadership wrangle also exists. For example, if I am higher than you in a rank, or you are higher than me, I might go to conj or to other commander and gossip or tell lies against you so that you are demoted and I replace you. This was what I saw happen among themselves. The LRA had strict rules and regulations. If a child was caught trying to escape, the LRA commanders forced children to kill them, often by beating them to death. Failure to obey orders from coin or the commanders was punishable by death. When you have just been abducted, uh, you think about escaping. You think of ways to escape from captivity. The thoughts of the parents 
and the relative you had left home makes one think of escaping. You would look at how you suffering the hard life you are enduring in the bush and think of escaping. While Beatrice and Samuel were in captivity, the LRA continued to abduct children across northern Uganda. In 1996, LRA rebels abducted 139 schoolgirls from St. Mary's College in Aboke in northern Uganda. A nun from the school followed the rebels into the bush and pleaded with them to release the girls. The rebels released 109 and took 30 others into captivity. Parents of abducted girls came together to fight for the unconditional release of their children. I was a teacher, now I'm retired, a primary teacher. One of the mothers, Phoebe Okello, is part of the team of parents that founded Concerned Parents Association. The parents of the abducted children had been meeting to find out the solution so that we can recover back our children. We thought of walking to the bush. Then some NGOs came to our rescues. They said, now when you walk to the bush and you are killed, when your children will come back, they will not get you. Then what benefit will that be? Samuel was held captive for three years, Beatrice for seven. Sometimes it rains and you are beaten by the rains. You would imagine life at home and mentally draws the image of home, relatives and parents. Many children who had been abducted were afraid if they escaped from the LRA and returned to their villages, they would be killed by the Ugandan government soldiers. Samuel says throughout his years in captivity, he and the other children hoped someone would do something to rescue them and bring them home. Some children were young. We would wonder if it, if it were possible for the parents of the children to talk to the rebels to allow the young children be released, but it was very difficult. Parents of the abducted, government representatives and social workers would try and communicate with the abducted children, Okello says, by sending messages and information through the radio by song. If they came home, they would be safe. We had been meeting so that we were trained on advocacy skills. After training us, then we started advocating in different ways. We would bring some boys together to sing for us, so we were sending information through singing. We were even advocating to the, to the parents who are in the villages because the rebels used to come to their parents. So we were advocating to them, tell them to come back. Tell them that the government is not killing you. So our chairperson would go to the bush and meet some rebels and talk with them. 
they kept on promising us that we are going to release them, we are going to release them, but they, they were not releasing them. Most of the girls escaped because we were praying from 1996. We were praying. It was prayers, nothing else. For life of the law, I am Gladys Oroma in Kulu, Uganda. You've been listening to Abducted, part one of our series from northern Uganda. It was reported by Gladys Oroma. To hear more about Gladys and her work and to access links to our research on Uganda, the background audio, and the music you heard, visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org. Our three-part series is produced in partnership with Annie Bunting from York University in Toronto, Teddy Atim, researcher in Kampala, Uganda, and Life of the Law senior producer, Tony Gannon. Additional support by Daphne Keevil Harold, Ian Koss, and Rachel Cassandra. Our post-production editors are Kirsten Jesuits Heidel and Rachel Kane. Life of the Law is a project of the Tide Center, and we're published by the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate. Our series is funded by the Social Science and Humanities Research Council, the National Science Foundation, the Law and Society Association, and by you, our listeners. Join us in two weeks when we present part two of our series, Escape. That's next on Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening. Dr. Pinnacle, we wear my day. Pinnacle, we wear my day.